0: Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. It's all about how to be um, a powerful, impactful coach. And today we're going to be exploring this idea of great work. Um, You probably know these moments in your life when you are being called to do more great work. Um, you know, it's those moments when we, we've kind of gotten comfortable, maybe we, we're doing our good work, you know, it's the work we're good at, we're known for it, it, it brings us an income, and yet something's missing. And uh, the great work is what is often calling, is that's, that's why we're being invited to take a risk, to play at our edge. And it's a place that brings an incredible amount of fulfillment and creativity. So that's what we're going to explore today. I'm going to be speaking with Michael Bungay Stanier, and he's um, he's a super cool guy, um, and he's going to be telling us how do we how do we identify our great work? What are some of the common kind of pitfalls, the things that uh, that get in the way of us taking that risk of doing our great work? So how can we know when it's calling us, and what it is? And and this idea of a great work project that which He'll explain, but it makes it super kind of um, well, much easier to start and actually get on with doing your great work. So um, Michael is um, an author. Um, he's the, the founder of a great company, Box of Crayons, um, which really is teaching about coaching um, to, to to business leaders. But he's the author of two um, great books or several great books, um, including... Um, the coaching habit, which really exploded um, recently, you know, over 250,000 copies sold, and also um, do more great work, which is what we explore today. Um, so, I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, you know, if you know other coaches that you think are going to enjoy this podcast, let them know about it. Let them know about it. I'd appreciate that. So, enjoy. I want to know. Um, about your work as a, um, you know, as a, as a coach, um, yeah. as somebody who works a lot with organizations, um, right. what, what is it you're doing with your clients? You know, what do you, what are you helping them to achieve?
1: Yeah. Well, here's one of the ironies for the guy who wrote the coaching habit is I don't do as much coaching as you might think. Um, I mean, I've gone through that process. I, you know, did my training with CTI for 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Um, built up a, built up a substantial practice, um, spent a lot of time on the phone and then a little bit of Skyping and stuff like that, coaching in person a little bit as well. And I found a couple of things. One is I'm not good at long-term relationships with clients. I'm good. At, I've been married 25 years, so I'm not, I don't, I'm, I got something going on, but actually with a lot of clients, I get bored fast. And I'm like, I can't believe we're doing this again. Now, you know, I've had my coach for eight or nine years. So, you know, I can, I, I'm hypocritical or something about that. But um, so part of it is around figuring out what am I best at? First of all, figuring out, you know, kind of connecting to connect into the Do More Great Workbook, which I know we're going to talk about, what my great work is, what, what's the impact I want to have in the world? and it 's not just about what you 're good at it 's about where you can most uniquely play hmm. and so for instance, Joel, you know one of the things that i 've learned about myself is i 'm a good coach and i 'm one of many, many good coaches in the world you know there 's a bunch of pretty bad coaches in the world, but none of them listen to your podcast so i 'm just like i 'm like everybody listening in i 'm pretty good, I know a bunch of stuff i 'm um, okay at that What I can do better than Many people is um, is translate complex ideas into actionable more simple, more accessible ideas, so like design of an experience uh, speaking from the stage, moving people, and facilitating that 's where i 'm in more rarefied com- uh, company i think I, c- I can do that more uniquely, more differently feels like a more a, uh, it also lights me up more so so the first thing to say is like, so Michael, what do you like as a coach? I'm like, uh, occasional <laughs> is, is what I'm like. But then in terms of how I try and think about the coaching I do, um, you know, there's this, this kind of process when you, in life, this happens in everything, but it happens in coaching as well, where you start off simple, you know, you do your training, you're like, okay, I've got my, model or i've got my question and then you build up complexity over time as you learn more as you hear more as you kind of go okay mastery is look at my tool belt now it's not so much a belt it's an entire leather outfit Um, you know so you kind of get there and then there's something about as somebody once said simplicity on the other side of complexity where you move to less but 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 cleaner more powerful so for me coaching mastery has something about a a different level of presence with the people with whom you're working you know um what is it to truly be with them rather than worrying about what the intervention is going to be or what the performance is going to be or what the value add is going to be. And I think there's also something trying to call forth your clients in a more powerful way, which is like, what are you going to be like as a client? And, you know, a lot of the coaching work that happens, and in fact, this is what we teach in our programs to managers and leaders, because that's the focus of the training company, is about look, self-awareness and self-knowledge, but that's driving forward something. Because in organizations, that's what is required. But at a deeper level of coaching, it's that sort of ability to see somebody, call somebody forth at a deeper level of who they are and that requires the ability to do the same to yourself. I think. Yeah. So I don't know. This is like, <laughs> I, don't if, I don't know if half your audience have already left. Cause they're like, he's rambling. He's a rambler. He's a well, step away from this podcast. He's a rambler. So that's, permission, that's, permission to ramble.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really inspired by what you're saying um, because I think, um, you know, we just created a program for coaches about this, you know, like, how do you move into that space beyond your training and your tools, which can actually, um, which can often get in the way, you know, because you're kind of right. thinking through them and looking at your client, and you know, you're getting in your head, and you know, it's kind of killing that that kind of connection, that presence, mm. connection, and intimacy. Right. So, so that really inspires me that you talk about this. And then the second thing, you know, that really jumps out is how do you call forth something. You know, from your clients, because ultimately that's what our clients want from us. You know, so so that really speaks to me, and it is something I'm practicing intentionally um, in in my coaching right now. Yeah. What? Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about how you do that. Like, um, I imagine because you said I'm not coaching that much, but you you are working with with groups.
1: I am. Well, let me. I bet you do that with them. I do, and I'll I'll show you. I'm going to go and grab something from my little bag of tricks here. Yeah. So I've got it right here. This is, this is my little facilitation toolkit that I take with me, and I've got a, a trip coming up. So if you ever wonder what's in a facilitation toolkit, I'll get to the thing I'm going to show you in a bit. But there's a, a, a little timer that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that. It's, it's like a little – round. for those listening, not watching, it's a little round. It's called the Zen clock. Um, it's, it's not a phone. So I'm not looking at my phone to check timing because I don't want to give people the wrong ideas. I've got a, a little Tibetan chime that I use to control the group or get their attention mm. a better way of putting it <laughs> just yelling shut up to people doesn't is annoying for everybody after a while so yeah. and what's lovely about that of course is it's it's gentle but really annoyingly persistent at the same time <laughs> it's a bit like me really um, so that's a nice way of doing that um. I carry uh, index cards because if you have a set of index cards, you can design almost anything on the fly um, with, with the people in the room. I've got a bunch, I've got uh, painter's tape, so kind of removable masking tape, because if you want to set up a facilitation exercise, you can just lay out a cross or a square or a line or something on the carpet and get people moving around there so you create shape and structure out of nothing with that um i've got a bunch of sharpies colored ones black ones because you know flip charts the curse of flip charts is people pick up a pen they write on it they go "Oh, the pen's dead yeah they put the cap back on and put it back on the flip chart (laughs) seriously if there's one thing you need to take away from this entire podcast is don't do that it's (laughs) crazy making i've been there so many times the Sharpie Magnum, I love this. This is like the biggest Sharpie there is. So when I'm writing on a flip chart, I get a really good substantial. Yeah, Michael is definitely writing on the flip chart. But here's the oh, and then there's my uh slip Thayer's slippery elm lozenges. So that's for throat control. So you, you know, look after your look after your voice as a speaker and a facilitator. But just carrying on the theme of the rambler here. Here's the thing about presence that I have. I, this is actually an exercise from the do more great work book. It's called this, not that. Yeah. And it's about what do you like at your best? And everybody in the listening, you know, with their coaching background will have gone through some sort of exercise like this and come up with kind of values perhaps, or something like that. Um, and my problem with values is most often they're kind of a, a kind of vague list of, motherhood and apple pie statements that are very hard to translate into action and behavior. So for me, I want words or phrases that are are tangibly linked to an action. But what I particularly like about this, this approach is it's not just what I'm like at my best, but it's also what I'm like, not at my worst, but when I'm off my game.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm So you can see I've got like eight pairs of words here. I'm holding it up to the screen. So what have you got Joyful, not fearful. Um, Step forward rather than step back. You know, that's kind of metaphorically and literally what I'm striving for. Playful, not serious. I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy about coaching as a profession and in general is how obsessively seriously everybody takes themselves and takes the profession. And I'm like, bring lightness, bring joy, bring laughter, into this mm. because actually people engage differently and learn b- differently and have more fun rather than going, Oh, we're so important. And this is so important. I mean, it is, but hold it lightly. Uh, so playful, not serious, loose, not tight. You can see how behavioral these are. It's like, Oh, I'm noticing my, I'm kind of wound up so it's embodied, uh, like, yeah, it's embodied kind of knowledge around this. A lot of it yeah. curious, not a know all comfortable, not anxious, um, provocative, not sycophantic. Sycophantic basically means sucking up to people. So I'm like, you know, my job is to stir things up a bit. If I'm, if I'm kind of playing nicey-nicey, I'm letting everybody down. Um, and then just phrases that mean something to me, manifesto of insignificance versus it matters. Um, years ago, I wrote a, a short article, but I, I – oh, <laughs> well, this is a good article. It's called my manifesto of insignificance, which is – Honestly, in 100 years' time, nobody's going to remember anything about you or anything you did. You know, just every – I mean, you look at the Nobel Prizes of, for literature. You know, most of those people nobody has ever read or ever heard of. And that's going to be true of all of us. So, you know what? Rather than go, oh, what's the point? You're like, hey, what freedom? Nobody's going to, yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to remember anything in 100 years. Go for it. So, there's that sort of sense around, you know what, What we do is important in the moment and insignificant in the big scheme of things. So have fun, go for it, make a splash because it doesn't it doesn't doesn't matter. Kind of in that Zen-like way. Yeah. So what you have in that list is one of the ways I try and show up and be present. Um, You know, that's an old list for me now. I probably I could probably refine that. A little, just because I've got a little better at understanding my own patterns, like my own need for approval or to be the smartest person or the funniest person or to have the, to have the quip yeah. and to ask myself, what's that about? And why do I need that? And to what extent is that serving me rather than the person I'm with? So there's, there's kind of deeper levels yes. you can go with that. And you just pull that
0: card out sometimes you know as you're about to step on stage or, or in a, into a room with a group
1: I pull it out or I get access I access it because I have a digit you know I have a photocopy of it on my Evernote so I can look at it on my phone and stuff Then yeah. I'm feeling a bit discombobulated you know if I'm like okay wow it's a big speech it's a group of people that maybe intimidate me more than normal uh, I, I don't get intimidated normally I, I always get a little a little anticipatory anxiety before a talk or a speech. But, you know, a couple of years ago, I did a speech for 8,000 nurses. Like, now I love nurses. They're great. My mum was a nurse. But yeah. a talk with 8,000. 8,000 is a lot of people. And it was roughly yeah. eight times larger than any group I'd ever done before. So I'm like, oh. So I just kind of connected to that and went, okay, just remember that and show up. And that helped ground me as to how I wanted to show up with that group.
0: What, I, it's funny. I just cycled back from a coaching session, and uh, I listen. I'm listening to The Art of Possibility again by um, uh, Benjamin and Rosamund Sander. and they, and it was the chapter about Rule Number Six. You know, don't take do yourself seriously. And um, yeah, you know, it, it, it. Like, I love that you point to that combination. That you know, of course, um, in some way, we're here to do uh, meaningful work and to. Yeah but that if it just becomes, you know, the shadow of that is that it gets heavy and stagnant and serious. Yeah. So we balance it out with, Hey, you know, like there's, there's an insignificance or, or, or a kind mm-hmm. of, um, insubstantiality to our life. It goes so fast. So just have exactly. some fun. you know.
1: Hey, so let me tell you a funny story about Benjamin Zander. Cause I love the, the book, The Art of Possibility. And if you've seen him speak, he's a very charismatic speaker. He plays a bit, he gets everybody to sing. Uh, you know, he's a good performer. Uh, And there's a lot of great things in that book, like give everybody an A and then have them figure out how they're going to earn the A, right? That's just a nice way of framing, engaging with people. But my first book called Get Unstuck and Get Going came out about 10 years ago. And I was even less well known than I am now, you know, These days I'm probably mid C level celebrity status in the coaching world, but you know, 10 years ago, nobody. I was like, okay, I want to get somebody famous or some famous people to write something nice about the book. And so I I was like, well, who do I don't even, I don't know anybody. So I'm like, okay, who's on my bookshelf and who do I admire and stuff. And Ben Zander was one of those people and he was actually speaking at a conference I was going to. So I was like, that's perfect. I'll find a way of giving him the book and asking him the favor. And of course that opportunity never really arises because the speaker's busy or performing and it feels, you know, it feels weird to kind of go, Hey, sh- sign your book for me. And here's my book. <laughs> That's awkward. So I came up with this great plan. I was like, I'm going to leave it with uh, the front desk. So when he checks out, they go, Oh, Mr. Zander, you have a parcel and it will be a copy of my book. And this is my book and a note going, I'm a fan look, I know this is a bit presumptuous, but maybe you consider taking a look and writing a, a short testimonial for the book. If it catches your fancy. So anyway, I good idea. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I get this note back from Ben, Mr. Art of Possibility Xander who went, and this is basically a direct quote. He went, I looked at your book, this, and I actually quoted him in the book. He goes, Hey, I don't believe I've ever said that. And I'm like, well, I thought you had, but never mind. And then he went, I thought this book was a shallow like a shallow ver- version of Chicken Soup for the Soul. I was like, man, that's because that's that's a pretty shallow book because Chicken Soup for the Soul is not what you'd call deep, right? Right. Chicken Soup for the Soul is already a pretty shallow book. If I'm the shallow version of that, I'm basically an evaporated puddle. Oh no. <laughs> oh man. And it was like Man, what happened to giving somebody the A and then letting them work towards it? I'm just—you've you've burst my bubble now, like I, you know. Well, here's the thing. I mean, there's a couple of lessons there, maybe. Lessons for me, anyway. The first is um, hold your heroes lightly, because yeah. they're probably just messy human beings like all of us. And who knows? He's he's probably a lovely man. He just had a particularly bad day or I I wrote the note wrong. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why he might've written that grumpy email. Um, uh, And the second is behind people's success. It's just an accumulation of little stories like that. So like Mm -hmm. I had a bunch of people write awesome testimonials. Peter Block, Peter Block is my hero around thinking about organizational development and design. He's also a grumpy old man, but, but he's like, I love his work. He wrote a blurb for that book. Amazing. David Allen, you know, Mr. Productivity, he wrote a blurb for the book. So I was like, there's something amazing reaching out to these people who I I didn't know at all. And just asking a favor. And there's a bunch of people who never, you know, I wrote out, reached out to who never wrote back, who never replied, or who, who replied and said no, or who replied and said, you're a shallow version of chicken soup for the soul. So you've got to kind of take all of that in and hold, you know, celebrate the successes. And I guess for me, it's like just, I think the success I've had, such as it is, is as much through persistence and resilience as it is down to any in particular talent. I mean, for instance, the coaching habit book, right? It's amazing. We were talking about this beforehand, like 250,000 copies sold in the first 18 months, self-published, right? So it's like, everyone's like, what, I didn't even know it was self-published. I'm like, I know, that's because I worked really hard to make it not look like it was self-published. You know, it's been basically the number one coaching book on Amazon for 18 months since it got launched. So, and it's doubled the size of my training. I mean, it's just had this amazing effect. It's fantastic. But what most people don't know is I spent three years pitching it to the New York publisher who published Do More Great Work. So that sold closing in on 100,000 copies. So it's been a success. Um, and they just didn't like it. And they kept turning it down. And I kept trying to rewrite it. And re- so I wrote four versions of this book, all of which got rejected by my agent and by my publisher until I finally went, I can't take it anymore. I'm just doing my own thing because I believe in this, in this path. So I don't know, just sharing some of the background going, yeah. you know, you, you, there's a lot of stumbling around and bumping into walls in the darkness before you, you, you emerge into the light.
0: Well, I think I don't know, something <laughs> I'm, about not sure,
1: I'm not sure what your question was, but that's the longest answer ever to that <laughs> particular question. I can't remember
0: either, but you know, that's, that doesn't matter because I've got more now. So um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I want to kind of talk about great work, but I want to I connect it to this story you just shared, you know, that, um, you know, doing great work um, isn't, um, you know, this kind of glory, all the time glory, kind of glorified journey of, of, of light and, you know, uh, success. And
1: exactly.
0: do, you, do you feel that, um, you know, those rejections actually improved the book? You had to rewrite it four
1: times. Oh, it know? totally improved the book. Like yeah. the, the book is much better because of everything. Because by the end, I'm like, A, I'm like, damn it. I've, I've now done this book five times or four times. I know there's something here. And B, my vision for the book got even clearer. And C, you know, a number of reasons that book was rejected the first time. Around is like the versions I gave them probably weren't very good. Or well, weren't as good as they could be. So they definitely. I mean, in the thank you acknowledgements of the book, I'm like, thank you to the folks at Workman for turning me down repeatedly. I've never actually written to say thanks for the acknowledgement or congratulations on your book, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bitter. Um, but for sure, you know, you know, every, we know this. You know, like you get honed by the experiences that you have. Um, You know, I wrote an article once about called, I can't remember what it's called, but but, so people listening can probably hear this and people watching can probably see it, which is I have a cleft lip and palate. So it's like lightly odd top lip and nose and little scars at the top of my mouth, which gives it a slight speech impediment as well. So I kind of go a bit slushy on the S's and stuff like that. And if you're not sure what a cleft lip and palate is, when you're born as a child, you have um a gap in your top lip, sometimes big, sometimes smallish. Um, and if you have a cleft palate, it means the top of your roof also has a gap in it. So for most people, if you run your tongue over the top of your roof, you've got this kind of smooth yeah. palate. Yeah. I've got a I've got a kind of crevice in mine. Right. Um and uh and I just, I wrote an article some years ago. It came out in a book called End Malaria, which is uh, another project I did with Seth Godin. And it's called, and it's like your strength grows through your scars. Now there was this rumor at one stage that scar tissue is the strongest tissue in the human body, which would have been amazing as a metaphor, but it's not true. But it's, uh, but metaphorically to say it is true. And it's like, I, you know, the saying that I love around this is wisdom enters through the wound. You know, so you you get bruised, you get beat up and part of what you can do if you're lucky and you're resilient and you have a degree of emotional intelligence is do the work to say, what does this teach me? What do I know now? How does this, I mean, I don't love the whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because it sounds like death is an (laughs) ongoing option and I'm like, ah, that's not that good. Um, But there is something about you get, you get refined by the fire that you walk through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me like what, did, how did that refine you? Like, because you know, you like talking to you is a joy. Like there's, there's like, you know, the uh, knowledge and ideas and stories flowing through you. You know, yeah. so it seems like this is one of your gifts. Yeah. Like the way you touch people,
1: Yeah,
0: it does seem rela- related to,
1: not, not literally touch people because that's illegal, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> metaphorically yeah. I get it. Yeah. So tell tell me how, how did, what did it do for you? Like, yeah, well, I just th- this may not quite answer your question, but yeah, one of the things that I'm aware. Of, so I'm in the business of, you know, I run a training company, box of crayons, but part of that is me giving speeches and keynotes and, you know, being on stages in front of people. And, you know, I'm really interested in kind of the neuro, you know, the neuroscience of connection, the neuroscience of engagement. What does it mean to connect? And actually, I talk about this in the coaching habit book briefly, right? The terror model. Mm. So many coaches listening in will know actually know more than I do about this stuff. But you know, the basic science is five times a second, your brain's going: Is it safe here or is it dangerous? Risk or reward? Um, it's a very Darwinian survival mechanism because the brain is going over two jobs. One is to survive. The other is to be as efficient as possible. So it's scanning the environment and, you know, kind of building off people like David Rock and other folks work. We use a model called terror, which are the four drivers that make the brain feel safe. Tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. Tribe, are you with me or are you against me? Expectation, do I know what's happening next or do I not know? Rank, are you more or less important than me? Autonomy, do I get some choices in this or are you making all the choices for me? And of course, this is great parenting, coaching, managing, leading, just interacting with other human beings. If you're constantly thinking, how do I raise their terror quotient? You have happier, more engaged, more interesting people in your life. And so, one of the things that happens when you're a keynote speaker is the terror quotient. It, kind of works to disengage the audience because tribe are you with us or against us well you're kind of against us you're up on a stage separate behind a podium we're all down there in the audience so there's a pretty big gap expectation look i know this is going to be an hour long speech but i don't really know what you're talking about or what you're going to cover or where we're going to go with that rank who's more important here well i've just you've just done a five minute intro where you list every single award you've ever won in your entire life and you're polished and you're probably getting paid in a large amount of money to, to do the speech. And you get to tell us what to do. Well, there's the autonomy piece, right? It's like, so let me give you my advice, you peons down there in the audience, because I'm the <laughs> smart person up here. So there's something about speaking from the stage, which is doing all it can to disengage the audience, Mm-hmm. The audience is going, I'm just looking for any opportunity I can to disengage. Now, humor is a brilliant way to engage people because humor is off is a way of, if we're all laughing, we're in the same tribe together. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get the joke that raises your rank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a way that humor, particularly if you self deprecating humor, and you can see that I, I have a line in self deprecating humor, mm-hmm. um, because by doing that, I'm lowering my status, my rank, and, and raising other people's rank as a, a degree of that. But and this is the long answer to your question, which is, so my speech impediment, um, which is minor, but it's it's there, I think that just takes the edge off the, the polishedness that some keynote speakers have. I mean, this is a hypothesis, it may or may not be true, but, you know, I'm kind of, I don't show up with a slick haircut and a white shirt and a red tie and a blue suit doing the power move. I'm like colorful shirts and kind of slightly messy hair and a speech impediment and a sense of humor and all that sort of stuff. It's an, a very. Del- it's, I can see how that it drives it, and it's I, it's shaped like this with a sense of deliberate mindfulness around. There's a bunch of things I do to engage others in the work that I do. So this experience you have with me, I mean, for those people who are watching, what you'll notice are a few things about how I'm performing. The first is I have been looking at you the whole time, right? I've kind of kept eye contact with you the whole time. Now, technically, here's why that's tricky. Because if you look at Joel, Joel's actually looking at the screen of his computer, Mm -hmm which means that he's not keeping eye contact with you. He's kind of, his eyes are slightly downcast. Hmm. Now what I'm doing is I'm looking directly into the camera at the top, yeah. like what you're doing right now. Right yeah. now that's, that's actually slightly weird because it means that I'm, my instinct is to want to look at Joel, right? right? Cause I'm talking to Joel and through him, you, but actually what I'm doing is working the camera hmm. because I know that that's a more engaging sense of connection and rank, you know, shared rank, and yeah. tribiness as part of that. So I know that just that little act alone makes me a more engaging speaker for those, for those of you who are watching because I'm, I'm pretty much – it's slightly uncomfortable for me, but it serves the bigger goal. Nice, nice, beautiful. So, <laughs> Sorry, man.
0: No, 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 it's good, it's good. So um, I want to talk to you about great work because yeah. I have a feeling that you live – your great work regularly. Yeah. Like it's something that you're, um, you know,
1: contributing to the world. It's something something that I try to keep forefront. Right. And, and, and the way I think of it is, I mean, for those that don't know these, this very simple model, which again, you know, I've kind of, I stand on the shoulders of others around this. There are three types of work in the world, bad work, good work, and great work, bad work, mind numbing, soul sucking, life crushing. What the hell am I doing? good work. It's your job description, right? And you have a job description, whether you work in a big company or you run your own coaching practice or whether you're a stay at home parent, it's kind of the stuff you need to do to keep it all ticking along. And then the great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. So it's the work that both lights you up. I care about this. This makes a difference. This makes a dent in the universe um, well, actually I'm, I'm, I'm muddling that up. So it's a work that lights you up. This is the stuff I care about. This is, this is kind of what I signed up for. This speaks to my values. This brings forth the best version of me. Mm. And it's the work that makes a, a dent, you know, an impact in the universe it makes it, it, has impact. Mm. And what you're looking for is the best mix for you right now between good work and great work. Cause you need a mix. You can't just do great work cause kind of your head explodes um, but you trying to find the optimal mix around that. And what most people are battling is a too much bad work, but also too much good work. And in particular the good work, because it feels busy and it feels productive and there's always more of it. And it kind of like, Oh no, I, I ticked off 93 things in my to-do list today. That's awesome. Just didn't do any great work as a result of that. Yeah. So all of that to say, this is my refinement on how you framed it, which is to say, I I keep asking myself, what's the best mix for me between good work and great work right now?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, it really resonates with me. And um, I think like what I noticed from reading your book is like, oh, it's so easy to spend a lot of time doing good work. You know, it's kind of, um, it's comfortable. Um, you know, I am making some contribution there. I'm, I'm, uh, it's where I generate my income. Exactly. Uh, um, and and there's this kind of slightly numbing feeling to it if I spend all my time there it's like it leaves me with this like kind of something's missing you know right and and so when you when I read about great work I was like okay shit
1: that's like (laughs) this is a call (laughs) to get a little bit out of your comfort zone and expand who you are and what you can do in this world
0: yeah exactly exactly and so that's that's um that's, that's what I want to, I wondered if you could talk about um, um, a little bit more about great work, you know, like, yeah, um, sure. like how that shows up for people. I think taking a risk is, is a part of it. You know, that's an element of it, isn't it?
1: I think so. Um, I, mean, the frame, I mean, people have the three definitions. The other thing to say is I believe that over time, great work, if you like, degrades to become good work. Mm. For instance, when I first started coaching, I don't know if you remember the, you know, that first three months of you coaching, If you're yeah. like me, you're like, Oh my God, this is so anxiety provoking, right? You're <laughs> like, what am I doing? And what if I kill this person? And what, what if I forget everything? and I don't have anything to say, or I can't be helpful. And you kind of got that hammering sweaty palms. Mm. Oh my God, the phone's rung. <laughs> it's my client. What am I going to do? Um, but there's a way that over time you, you, but you move from if you like conscious incompetence, which is kind of what you're like when you start to conscious competence to unconscious competence and unconscious competence is when you're like, I'm, I'm in the groove, you know, I'm like, I know how to do this. I got a coaching call. Oh yeah. It's in two minutes time. Yeah, I'm good. That's fine. They'll ring. We'll have a chat. We'll coach. I, and, um, Great work is at places, as I said before, more impact, more meaning. Yeah. And I think what a lot of us hope is that our great work will show up for us and just arrive. And, you know, sometimes it does happen like that. I mean, I think there are three ways great work shows up in people's life. It's a 3D model, disaster, delegation, and discovery. So disaster is some, some shit hits the fan, okay, and you step up right? It's like, Oh my God, the thing. And then the other thing, and Oh my God. But I, I, you know, it called on me to become the better version of myself. So I figured this out. Now that's on one hand, cool. On the other hand, a disaster happened <laughs> and you know, you don't want to set off disasters just so you can do more great work. That's kind of uh, not that's a short term strategy, <laughs> not a good long term strategy. The second thing is that, you know, you get given great work, you know, you get a client or a boss or somebody who delegates it to you in some way. And you're like, Oh, this is cool. Right? They, they give me this thing. I've always wanted to work on that. And you know, you, you can influence that, right? Because you can, if you know what your great work is. And I mean, when we finish at the top of the hour, I've got a job interview with a guy who's coming in on potentially to help us with some sales and marketing stuff at Box of Crayons. And what we're trying to figure out is what does great work and good work look like for him and what can we offer him as a result of that? Um, So yeah, my job as the boss at Box of Crayons, the CEO is to in part, figure out how I can delegate great work to people. To do that, I need to know what their great work is because it's not necessarily connected to their history or their skills or what they've done before. Um, Good work is often connected to that, but great work, not so much. And then the discover piece is when you go, well, who am I and what does light me up and what do I care about and how will I go and find the great work that that matters to me? And for me, one of the tactics that can work really well here is to to articulate what a great work project might be for you. Mm. Because you've got to work on the assumption that good work will just continue to squeeze everything out. You know that whole I'm going to get to my great work just as soon as I have finished awesome. <laughs> just as soon as I've hit inbox zero just as soon as I've finished all the podcast interviews I've done just as soon as I've done my social media obligations just as soon as I've cooked dinner for the family just just as soon as I've done all that I'm That's definitely going to my great work and you're like that day is you're always chasing it it never quite comes yeah yeah so what I like is the idea of a project, because a project has a start date and a finish date, it has a success criteria. And it's a way of thinking about, all right, where would I put the time and effort and energy and resources and relationships and equity that I've got to move something forward? So the End Malaria book. Just grabbing a copy of it. Um So the malaria book, this is a book I, I, I created, Uh, I published it with a marketing blogger called Seth Godin that some people will have heard of. Uh, he had a year of, I'm going to just publish books. I'm going to do it in partnership with Amazon and I'm going to see what it's like to try and disrupt the publishing world. And I was one of the 10 or 11 books that he published in malaria is actually a collection of smart people writing about great works. There's like 60 or 70 thought leaders you know, a bunch of people, names that people will have heard of, like uh, maybe um, Ken Robinson, uh, oh, Derek Sivers, uh, who else, Brené Brown, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Sally Hogshead, Nancy Duarte, Niloufar Merchants has got a new book out, Seth, of course, Chris Gillibo, Jonathan Fields, Chris Brogan. I mean, there's a bunch, Dan Pink, you know, there's a bunch of Thanks. interesting yeah. folks. Yeah. Um, but what was cool about it was, I was like, okay, this is the book I wrote after Do More Great Work. And after Do More Great Go" came out, I was like, yay, I did it, and I got over the finish line, and I'm exhausted. I was like, okay, it says in the book, Do a Great Work Project. So probably I should try and do a great work project because, you know, <laughs> follow your own advice, Michael. Why not? Try it for once. Um, and I was like, so what can I do? Or what do I want to do? Or what impact do I want to have in this world? And I was like, you know, I've got a strong Save the World side to me. So um, I was like, okay, so what could I do that would have maybe global implications? I mean, think bold, why not? And I actually started researching the millennial goals from the UN, one of which is to eradicate malaria. Mm -hmm. And then I had the idea of like, what's the cheapest unit of change in the world at that level? And from my research, it seemed to me that a $10 mosquito net was the cheapest unit of change. And what I liked about that is I was, I was getting the idea of buy something buy a mosquito net because sometimes with these charitable things, you're like contribute to an amorphous project that nobody's quite sure of. And my money goes towards something, you're not quite, you know, you're like 10 bucks out of a $5 million donation. What, how does your money actually get used here? I was like, okay, malaria unit of change, 10 bucks, buy something, by Net, And I tried this with my workman publisher, my New York publisher. They were they would try to be helpful, but we couldn't quite figure out how to get around the intricacies of the publishing world. So I spent six months trying to get it off the ground, abandoned it. And then four months later, my workman guy rang up and said, Hey, you should look at Seth Godin. Maybe he can help you. And I pitched Seth, who I knew a little bit, and that became my great work project. And I was like, great. I've got all the other stuff running my business and I'm doing this. And that this is going to require two hours a day. And I'm going to work like the Dickens for those two hours a day to get this book done, edited, designed, cross the finish line and launched and boom, I was done. And so this, I'm mean, going to talk about it because this is one of my favorite projects that I've done. one of the things I'm most proud of um, and it was a classic great work project. I came up with the idea. I defined it in a way that had impact, but also had meaning for me. It kind of yeah. lit me up. And then we ran it from this date to that date. And then we were done.
0: I, I love it because it's, 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 yeah, that project nature, as you just described, it makes, it like, it makes me want to do it. You know? It's not open-ended. It's not like a lifetime right. thing. I want right. to sink my teeth and it's connected to what's meaningful and creative for me. And yeah. I think that's, you know, it, it, there's something about this great work that speaks to that side of us, which um, is creative, is evolving, is emergent in some way, you know, that yeah. dares to dares to, to step into creating this thing, which might fail, you know, and I, I love Seth Godin too, and he's always advocating that, you know, that, you know, there's got to be a risk that you're going to, you're going to fail with this stuff if you right. put your heart into the world. And right. um, there's something about the fulfillment of taking on that endeavor. that's so, um, enlivening, you
1: know? Exactly. It brings the, the, the feeling of great work. And this is what people need to know. The feeling of great work is a combination of excitement and terror. Because <laughs> there's that excitement where you're like, this is it. I'm so excited. I'm in the flow state. This is awesome. And then there's the kind of the anxiety that comes with it, which is, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. I'm stepping out to the edge of who I am as a person in terms of my Confidence and my competence and my self-assurance. So you're stretching and you're growing. But you know that that quote: "The brain, once stretched, the mind, once stretched, never shrinks back to its original shape." Mm-hmm. That's what you're doing. You're you're making new neural connections. You're seeing a better, bolder version of yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's through doing the work that you get to engage and and emerge into the potential that you have. I think.
0: And going back to a point you said about, you know, calling forth something in, in our clients, you know, I think this is, this is one way that we can evoke that in our clients. It's like, what is this great work you're here to do? And, you know, I like, what would it be to commit to do this?
1: Right, right, exactly. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, we say that the three things you need to do great work are focus, courage, and resilience. Focus is like, I need to know who I am and I need to know what the opportunities are. Courage is I need to, let's say I've figured out I want to do a book. I've got to have the courage to take the first step and actually get going on that. And resilience is when you're like, okay, <laughs> this is all hard and confusing and difficult and messy. And, you know, it's, I've failed the first three times trying to do this. I'm going to keep going because I think it's worthwhile doing. You know, like me and you know, like some of the stories I told earlier, there's a degree of it's resilience that got me across the line. Cause I'm like, okay, three years pitching the book to workmen who I thought liked me because I, you know, did do more great work, which was a successful book for them. But I'm not going to give, I'm, I'm going to think about it and go, what's true about what they say, but I'm not going to give up on this idea of this book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I want to share a story uh, that came up for me about, I just connected something about great work and um, it just happened recently for me and it shows up in my coaching now connected to calling forth something in your clients. And um, I watched this movie recently called the last city of Zed, um, which you may or, may or may not have seen. I've recently. seen it. Yeah. It's a, it really moves me. It's a, you know, it got critiqued quite a lot in the, by, by the yeah. critics, you know, for being long and, overblown but it really moved me and and you know this guy com- he, this guy is like totally committed to
1: obsessed right yeah
0: obsessed with um with finding this lost amazonian uh city in the jungle you know yeah. to the point where he sacrifices uh a lot of things you know including his family life and his wife yeah. is one of the most impressive people in that movie for me because she she kind of um you know supports him in that and and, and lives into that sacrifice too um but when that movie finished I just wept, you know, I wept and wept. And I watched the ending of that movie like four or five times. Wow. Um, and, and every time I watched it, it just opened, it cracked my heart open and I was just weeping. And, and I kind of, I was like, it happens to me every few years, this, you know, where I'm like, oh shit, you know, okay. I've, I've got, I've been doing good work. You know, my great work has become good work. Exactly. And, and, and like you're,
1: you're hearing the call, right? You're hearing that, you know, for those of you who know the hero's journey, and that, right. that step, the first step of the hero's journey is you hear the call and you right. reject the call. <laughs> right. but then you're like, yeah, that's not for me. I, I'm busy. I've got, have you seen my inbox? I've got way too many emails to go and answer that particular call to great work. But then the call comes again and you're like, damn it. <laughs> and you have right. to kind of cross the threshold. That's the language I use, cross the threshold. And then you're in into that adventure, which is into the darkness. It's to face the monster Right. conquer the monster and come back with the gift for the community. Yeah. Right? So there's a strong connection to that call to great work and doing the hero's journey as part of that process. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, and you know, for me, um, that process, I'm still in it, you know, so I'm still, I'm still going down into the, yeah. you know, but one thing I noticed was like, part of me was like, okay, I can't compromise in certain ways in the, in the way that I used to. So I've, I've started showing in my coaching, in a more powerful way. Nice. I'm like, okay, I I, like, um, it's a bit of a combination between what you said of like um, taking yourself seriously in the sense of like, okay, what am I, what's meaningful? What do I want to contribute? But also being like, fuck it, you know? Like, okay, what am I waiting for, you know?
1: The language I use with coaching is I, to my clients, the, the few that I have is, I talk about, I intend as best I can to show up with fierce love. Mm. love meaning i have your back i am on your side i want you to be the best version of yourself fierce meaning i'm not going to be nicey-nicey about it you know i'm going to do all i can to push you cajole you encourage you hug you kick you up the ass all of that Mm. because my commitment is to the love and how i'm going to get there with you
0: yeah totally totally
1: um and
0: I notice, you know, declare, I'm, not, I'm declaring this story to you, uh, sharing it, and I notice the impact it has on me, which is it just brings, right. you know, the, like that life force comes right. in, that kind of energized right. and excited. And um, let me ask you, like what's, like, what's your next great piece of work? What's the, like, what's the edge of your work right yeah. now? It's a kind of personal question, but yeah. I feel comfortable to go there with you.
1: Um, um, Well, luckily I'm comfortable to answer it. So it's a perfect combination. (laughs) So so I have a box of crayons is the company that I run. I'm the CEO of, I guess, and we're a training company. We train busy managers and leaders so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. In the last two years, it's gone through a real transformation. It's gone from kind of being pretty Michael centric. Like even though I wasn't doing all the delivery of the programs, it was kind of, I was the guy, I was the face, I was the originator or I was a, I kind of was the hub of it. And in part driven by the success of the coaching habit book, you know, our business has doubled in the last year. And so we've just grown and we've had to reinvent ourselves so that, you know, my, I'm a CEO, but the real work is done by, my marketing team and my sales team and my operations team and my delivery team. And I'm much more in that. My, my role has emerged and changed. So part of my, my great work and my new work, Joel is to figure out what it means to be <clears throat> the CEO of a company that's at that next level of professionalism and sophistication in the work that we're trying to do. And that's exciting. Um, but I'm also aware that that's probably not enough for me. So we've just, in like last month or so, put up a new website called MichaelBungeStanya.com. So it's my very long, complicated name. Um, And at the moment, that space is there as much for me to kind of see what emerges from when I'm giving myself that space. Um, what starts showing up for the work Michael wants to do that's separate from talking about coaching in 10 minutes or less. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this, la- I was talking about this last night over dinner with my wife and I was going, you know, in some ways it feels in box of crayons. I have an office, but for Michael I have a studio and you know, I'm a big believer that space yeah. shapes the way that you show up and interact in the world. So design your environment to be the person you want. And just that different, I mean, it's a metaphor at the moment, it may become an actuality, having an office and having a studio, I'll show up differently in those different places. Um, so, I mean, just as an aside, so at com, at the moment there's a, a downloadable ebook called uh, How to Be Courageous. And if people are interested, I mean, this kind of connects to everything we've been talking about so far. So there's just a free, a free that's all that's there, a free ebook i be courageous, so people are welcome to grab that if they're interested. But really, it's like I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going to emerge on that on that side of things. I'm, I'm excited to find out myself. Beautiful answer, but and, and and it strikes me again of like,
0: you know, taking that risk, taking right. the risk to to leave behind something that's become um, very successful, and and not like leave it behind, but to yeah. To, to keep on that creative, evolving edge, you know, that keep that right. will keep you at your best doing your great work. Right. So.
1: Because the question is, is like, what's the mix of good work, great work I have here? And at the moment, the the my learning edge is so engaged trying to be this more grown-up, sophisticated, delegating, encouraging leader that I've got the right mix. But I can see how in 12 months or 18 months time, that may shift a little bit. So I may be reimagining my role. Yeah. Nice.
0: Hey, I feel like we've, uh, we've had a lot of fun and uh, <laughs> yeah. we've got like a, you know, we're coming to the end of the hour. So I, I want to, you know, uh, round up what, let me ask one last thing you can, and it's a short, what would be the the call you would offer to coaches listening in now? If you would, you know, evoke something great in them, what would be, what would you, how would you do that in a sentence or two?
1: Well, you know the starting point to frame all of this is always be a bit suspicious of other people's advice because you know you know who who the hell am I i don't even know you. <laughs> I mean the people listening. you know how could I presume to you know offer up some top titbits around anything based on nothing um, so I'll just tell you um, the two things that I think about. here's three things that I think about and maybe there's something useful in in that for, for folks. Um, I've got them right here on my computer. So I'll show them to people. Uh, One is um, understand what your values are. And I think lots of coaches have done this exercise in some way, but often what we do is like we do coach training. There's something about who are you? What are your values? And we're like, Oh, I've got my values. And then we leave it at that. Yeah, right. Um, and I think there's a degree to which you're like, keep coming back to that values list and keep refining it so it becomes more and more real for you. I and mean, we saw the this and that piece I have, but here are the values uh, for, this actually box of crayons, provoke impact, be generous, uh, pursue elegance, have fun, and nurture adult to adult relationships. And I think what can be powerful is that you keep going you know, like once a week, once a month, stop and go, how did I do against those values? And then one flip is to go, if those are my values, what does 10 out of 10 look like if I was truly embodying and living those values? Mm-hmm. And if I stepped up to 10 out of 10 on just you know, pick one of them, what would I stop doing? What would I start doing? What would I do more of? So use your, use your values, not just as a kind of amorphous statement of who I am in this world, but use them as a catalyst for change like if I hold myself to the standards that these values proclaim, how am I doing? And what would I be doing differently if I was stepping up my game? Yeah. Love it. Then the the second thing is, uh, so I have this on my computer and by my computer, just hold it a bit lower. It's uh, September 15, 20, it 2043. And it's a quote from Pema Chodron. Since death is certain, the time of death is uncertain. what, what's the next important thing. Now I looked up, uh, there's a guy called Kevin Kelly, kk.org. And if you Google something like calculate your own date of death, you'll find this great little article that he did. And it's like, statistically you can figure out when you're going to die based on, you know, how old you are, where you live, male, white, whatever. Um, so my statistical date of death is September 15th, 2043. And he said also, look, you basically get to do one big project every five years. So based on that, I'm like, I've got, I've got five good projects left in me, maybe. What are they going to be? And it means that I'm trying to measure my life in five big things rather than a, a daily to-do list. And then the other thing I've got, and this is a, a quote from Charles Bukowski, which is, if you're going to try go all the way, otherwise don't even start. And what's behind that for me is that question, that powerful question that's at the heart of great work is, What if I'm going to say yes to this, what must I say no to? So that that yes is real and meaningful and has edges and is an actual commitment rather than just an overloading on your already overloaded life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, figure out what your values are and live up to them. Figure out what you're going to say no to so you can say yes to some really important stuff and figure out when you're going to die so you've got that sense of, I don't have that much time. Get on with it. Yeah, I could feel that washing over me already. I'm really glad I asked
0: you that question. This is really powerful. Um, yeah, thank you yeah. for sharing.
1: And like Sorry. I say, not so much me telling you to do this stuff, just me no. telling you this is what I do to try and stay engaged. And I, don't, I don't always remember, but when I do, it's helpful. Yeah,
0: yeah. Hey, Michael, I've had a lot of fun. Um, I'm aware of the time you've got uh, something coming up. so.
1: A conversation with a new person about great work. So it's
0: perfect. Yeah, thank you. You, you, you
1: primed mean, me perfectly for this job interview.
0: <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I hope we get the chance to speak again and, and we can find out. Do you want to direct us to a website with this michaelbungaystanier.com? Yeah, course.
1: so Michael Bungaystanier, it's a bit of a complicated name, but Joel will show you how to spell it in the, in the yeah. show notes. And like I say, at the moment, there's an ebook people can grab. Um, if you're interested in the book, thecoachinghabit.com, and you can download the first, I think, two or three chapters, so you can even check it out. Um, it's, it's an oh, ebook and audio book as well, if you like that. And then, if you're interested in the training that we do, and we 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 don't train individuals, we train within companies, you know, companies by us, uh, boxofcrayons.com. Yeah, yeah,
0: beautiful. Oh, and I'm right.
1: going to ask one favor. Yeah, of course. For the people who buy the book, and thank you, I really appreciate that. And for the people who even read it, which is like a double commitment, thank you. Here's the favor I would ask. If you're so moved, so inclined, a review on amazon.com is always really gratefully received. My goal is to make the book a coaching classic. And one of the ways I'm measuring that, and it's arbitrary, but I'm doing it anyway, is to try and have a thousand reviews on amazon.com now we're at about 750 so that's pretty on the way yeah yeah. on the way but i'm kind of just shamelessly asking for people's help like if you're so moved a review on amazon.com would be really helpful
0: it's me again i hope you enjoyed this and i just wanted to invite you to share this podcast if you've been inspired by it and you think other coaches are going to enjoy this too then let them know about it because we're going to be speaking to pioneers and masters and experts in the field of coaching and how to be a powerful coach all the time and we're going to be adding these podcasts to the series so uh, they can find out more and you can find out more by heading to www.coachesrising.com forward slash podcast.